Hi, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Just a heads up at the top of this episode, our conversation today does explore mental health and suicide ideation. Today's guest is author Jen St. Jude. Her soon-to-be-released book coming out in just over a week on May 9th is If Tomorrow Doesn't Come. This has been one of my favorite books that I have read this year. It's been a great, great joy of mine to get a preview of it. So let me tell you a little bit about that book. We Are Okay meets They Both Die at the End in this YA debut about queer first love and mental health at the end of the world and the importance of saving yourself no matter what tomorrow may hold. You will find links to pre-order this book over there in the show notes. Author Jen St. Jude is going to talk to us all about that book. Jen St. Jude is the managing director at Chicago Review of Books and has worked in Catapult, Gigantic Sequence, and The Rumpus. Her debut YA novel, If Tomorrow Doesn't Come, is published by Bloomsbury Children's. Again, that is just over a week from today. You'll be able to find them on Twitter. Jen's handle will be in the show notes, and it is at Jen St. Jude. So let's get into this week's conversation. Your new book, If Tomorrow Doesn't Come, is bound to spark some very important conversations about mental health. And I'm wondering if there was a certain point in your writing or your drafting or your researching where that became a goal, or is that kind of a misrepresentation of the book and you feel like that wasn't at all necessarily a primary goal? Yes, this is a great question. And the answer, the simple answer is that it became a goal pretty late in my writing process. Uh, so I started writing this book in 2012, so over a decade ago at this point. Um, and I was a senior in college. I was really struggling um, for, with depression for you know quite some time and had um, left school for a while because of it. I came back. I was determined to finish, but I felt like very scared because nothing had really changed. Like, I was back at school, you know, presumably to finish and start my life back up again, but I couldn't really see how it could ever be different. And so I started writing this book, not because um, I had a goal or a vision for it, but only because it was the only thing I could write about at that time, because it was so all consuming in my life. I felt like I lived in a very close bubble of, you know, cloud of depression and couldn't really see beyond that at all. Um, I started writing my experience. I kind of found my way into the story through the apocalypse lens and was just really writing what it felt like for me to be depressed and tried to think about why. And, um, you know, these characters sort of existed in different forms over the years. The characters that are on the page now are, you know, probably from 2018 plus really started shaping them. Um, but it was really just writing vignettes and the chapters in completely random order, just really piecing it together. Um, and I never really intended it for, for it to be how-to guide to heal from depression. It was really just writing my experience. Um, it kind of shifted, though, again, around 2018. I finished the draft. I started really thinking about 
what a next step for this book could look like. I didn't know if it was adult or YA. It's like a college age YA. I didn't know what genre it fell into. I didn't think I would ever publish it. Um, but as I started to reach for publication, a lot of people that I worked with, my mentors um, who were terrific through Pitch Wars uh, and different readers that I had, everybody really wanted like a narrative arc, right? Like the character starts in one place and then to the different one. And I resented it a little bit because I was, I'm aware that's how fiction works, but I also was like, well, that's, I'm still struggling with depression. So how can I write this story about healing when I don't think I've fully healed? But at some point as I was editing writing, I sort of looked around and was like, well, actually, that's not true. Actually, I have healed quite a bit. I've learned a lot. I still live with it. I always will. But look at my life. Like I'm happy a lot of the time. I've built community. I've learned to express myself. Um, you know, finding a writing community was huge. Like, actually, my life is pretty hopeful. <laughs> and I also came out as queer during that time. So, like, there were so many different little things that when I stopped and looked around, I realized, like, actually, no, I, I have a narrative arc, not on purpose, <laughs> in my personal life. And, you know, ended up writing through that as well. Uh, and not to spoil anything, but I think Avery's past, the main character, is not like she gets better and she's happy and she's always going to be fine that's almost never true for anyone um but I think it's just learning to look at the little things and take it day by day and find different people and moments of hope that can kind of pull you from day to day so I think her her journey mirrors my own in a lot of ways um and so again it wasn't until I had finished the book and started thinking about what I wanted to do with it um and then COVID hit too and it's like people need a little bit of hope I think and you know, teens are living through something pretty hard and horrible um, over the past few years. So I think it just, my intentions with the book changed a lot and my goals changed a lot. And I couldn't be happier. Like it is my favorite version of the book. It's doing, I think, what I want it to do. Um, and I'm really proud of that part of it because it was so hard earned. Like I didn't set out to like tell a story or tell a lesson rather. I really just kind of writing my experience, <laughs> but I'm really excited about where it ended up. Uh, I mean, as a reader, I'm really happy where it ended up, too. And Jen, what you're saying about, you know, healing being kind of sometimes elusive to see if it's like, I'm thinking about it just in terms of where I'm at right now, because, of course, the structure of the book, we have this constant, here we are today, you know, there we were six months ago, two years ago, again, this constant back and forth. And I think for anyone who is struggling with anything, that toggling view of, but how did I get to where I am today, right, is an important kind of reflection. And I I don't know, I wonder, is that the structure of the book? Does that kind of mirror your personal process as well? Or again, was that, you know, design-wise, did you know early on that you really wanted this kind of jumping back and forth in time? Yeah, I didn't think about it too much in the beginning. Um, when I started writing, I just had all these little scenes in mind and pieced them together. But now that I look back on it, I think it serves a few purposes. Um, and I think one is just like, once the asteroid hits, like everything changes, everybody changes, like you're just living in this different world. And so I wanted to show who they all were before that. So we could then learn like what the present moment meant to them um, and how what they're doing in the asteroid reality is shaped by who they were before. 
Um, but I also think it's sort of like a queer way to tell the story of just like, at least for me growing up, and I think for the main character, like she never had the language or ways to talk about her sexuality or her identity. Um, and once she realizes this like huge part of herself, I think she's kind of looking back through her life and uh, retelling her story to herself, looking at it. At least for me, I look back and I was like, I didn't, I honest to God did not know I was queer <laughs> for a really long time. Of course, once I realized, I look back at my life, it was like, oh, like so many things make sense now that did not make sense before I didn't realize. Um, and so like, I think for her, she has that moment too of her life flashing before her eyes, um, not only because she's trying to, to save what happened to her on earth and tell her story and share parts of herself, but because there was so much of herself she didn't know she could access or um, didn't have the words for, even with having friends in her life, you know, that, that uh, were having their own experience, but hers was so personal to her that she just, you know, I don't know, it took me a really long time. And once I unlocked that door, it made, I stepped into a new world. It was like, wow, I, I have learned so much about myself all of a sudden, but, um, but it's hard to, it's hard to like expect that or know that's going to happen. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, again, I think it's interesting that you say it's kind of like a very queer way to tell a story because I have to see like whose theory or philosophy this is, but that like there's the such a thing as the queer timeline that the heteronormative sort of path for life, there's like these set milestones that must be accomplished. And if you're a queer person, it's like we don't necessarily need or are entrapped by those milestones, maybe? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I have to say, I, I really, when I invite authors onto this show, I really try to prioritize authors whose books make for excellent classroom texts or are going to help educator and scholar have some important conversations. And what I love about this book is that you really treat your YA readers with respect. Um, the young cast of characters in this book, they are nuanced, they're complex people who remind the older readers of your book, like me, that we need to advocate for representations of teens, young adults that speak to that complexity. Um, I'm wondering how your background as an editor maybe plays a part in your capacity to develop rich, complicated characters that are not you know, sometimes I really feel like teens and young adults in fiction and in media get a bad rap, right? Like they're simplified mm -hmm. um, as all just kind of like one very slight variation on one another. And that's unfair and not true, of course. Yeah, you know, I guess I'll get to the editor part in a second. But I think I don't feel very far away from who I was as a teenager. And I, I feel like I really had some of the most like complex and interesting and loving relationships of my whole life during that time um i went through some of the hardest things that i've that i've ever gone through <laughs> um and there are just so many things sorry just meeting there are just so many things during that time that you know we like we look at teenagers and we sometimes think like oh they're emotional or like obviously i don't feel like this but i'm like wouldn't i be in, at this point in my life if you put me back in that school and you said, okay, everything you do over the next four years is going to be put on a piece of paper and sent off to people. And they're going to judge you and decide what options are available to you in your life. 
oh, and by the way, you're going to have these people in your life who you love so much. They're going to be ripped away from you when you then take your next. I mean, everything that teenagers are going through, and that's not even getting into the realities of the world that they have to deal with um, and the pressures on them and mental illness and COVID and everything that's been happening. is like, I just feel like just like adults, they have expectations, they have hopes, they have fears and they're put in like a fishbowl of a school. Like I just, it makes sense to me why um, there are big emotions at that age that have everything to do with like, that's a natural human reaction to like the situation that young people are in. And I would probably feel the exact same even now being, you know, later in life. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I, some of my favorite memories of my whole life are from that time. Um, and again, like I just had really, really intimate and, fun and interesting relationships and friendships um and so I really wanted to capture that on the page and really just capture like the humanity of that time um and just how my feelings are still really big as an adult so like really capturing that that's why I think I was drawn to YA too is just like it allows space for that like it allows you to feel so crazy in love and just like deeply upset over something very small um I just love YA for that of giving space for those emotions that I still have to this day um and in terms of editing yeah I think that that's definitely possible I definitely try to sit with my work and in every you know beat of the story really think about how the characters are feeling um and I will say too my editor Camille Kellogg uh, from Bloomsbury is phenomenal and she I just felt like she had such empathy for the story and she would just ask me so many questions about what is what are her expectations in this scene what is she afraid of what are they hiding from each other and what are they sharing with each other um and I think obviously in a first person story you have a lot more of like Avery's inner thoughts than any other characters um but I tried to make choices around that of like what's not being said <laughs> And how can I put that on the page? And what is being said? And is it entirely true? Or are they trying to, you know, lie to each other, not on purpose, but because they have things to hide or they're scared or they're hopeful? Um, so I think, like, I think that's hopefully or, or maybe part of maybe the complexity of the characters of just really, like, sitting in every single moment and trying to think about, you know, how are they playing this? What are they trying to portray to the other characters? Um, and what are they hoping for? And, and what does that look like? I'm wondering if you might actually just, for our listeners, demystify a little bit of that dynamic of writer and editor, because I, you know, I know that sometimes when teachers are working with young learners on creative writing, I think there's this myth out there that I, I just need to know how to make all of the decisions uh, some people are just, you know, creatively gifted and others aren't versus uh, more of a let's go through this collaboratively. Like it is OK to ask for help. It is OK to take inspiration and to ask for inspiration from others rather than feel like it's just all on my shoulders end game kind of a thing. Um, so could you could you talk a little bit more about what is a in your mind, what is a, a dynamic between a writer and an editor that is uh, ideal? Or what what is the art and craft of, of being an editor? Yeah, so when I'm editing in my own life, and I have 
edited for some literary magazines. Um, my goal is you're, sorry, I have to help. pause because you're being so humble. You're, uh, you know, your editing work <laughs> is uh, for some of the most prestigious <laughs> literary magazines. Um, yes, I'm just I have to pause and kind of I appreciate you being <laughs> humble, but uh, I think it bears being said. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I'm humble in my own work because it really is all about the writers that I also am very proud of, those <laughs> literary magazines, because I think they are doing and have been doing some really beautiful things and they're really awesome creative spaces. Um, but I do think like my goal is always to help the author communicate their vision in the best way. So think I'm ripping this from someone and I don't remember who but it's like cleaning a window right it's like you're just kind of helping somebody take water to the window and wash away some of the dust so that the person on the other side of it the reader can more clearly see what was on the side that the author's trying to portray um and I think that's I think that's a really important part of editing I know that everybody has different styles but I think a lot of people sometimes come to it with their own vision and then try to say like, hey, let's shape it to this. But for me, at least, uh, my my kind of method is to really try to ask and have a conversation with the author around what they're really trying to get on the page and then help them find the spaces where maybe that's not coming through so much or you might want to, you know, peel it back a little bit because there's other things you're getting lost in. Um, so that's at least me as an editor. In terms of working with other editors, though, uh, on my own work, I think the reason I love my book so much is just because so many amazing people have worked on it at this point. Like now that it's going to publication, by the time you publish a book, your editor has worked on it with you. Your agent presumably has worked on it with you. Um, I had, again, two mentors, Adrian Tully and Kelly Quinlan, who worked on like multiple drafts with me during pitch wars, which unfortunately is not a program anymore. Um, but I would encourage young writers to seek like peer readers that they trust. Uh, and mentors if that's available to them uh, to really like kind of learn how the editing process what that sort of looks like um, and similarly I think Adrian and Kelly like they really sat down with me and at that point I was really trying to make it a YA book and I hadn't had that in mind before so they had experience about what that looks like and really helped me but the first thing they asked me was like what do you think's not working and what are you frustrated about and what do you think is missing and like we'll help you will help you get that on the page. That was kind of the conversation with them. And then I worked with my agent and her name's Erin. And she was basically like, I know how a book needs to look to get published. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, I'm going to help you sell this book. And she did. Thank you very much, Erin. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just people have this vision and these talents and they, it's not their first rodeo and they know things that you don't know. Um, and even peer readers, like they're coming at it you know, this is presuming you want to publish a book. I think there's some real value in just writing for yourself and just getting it on the page and not necessarily sharing it with anyone or sharing it with close people you trust. You don't have to go all the way to publishing it. But I think if that's your goal, you really want to learn how readers are experiencing the book, um, people from different backgrounds, what they're taking away from it, which is not to say you should change it for every single person. That would just be a mess. But I think knowing how it's perceived, knowing how different little moments hit readers, um, and maybe most importantly of all, realizing what questions it sparks in people and like, do you want them to be answered or not? Do you want them to sit with that question and, and carry that away from your writing? Um, and that's a lot of what my editor Camille did with If Tomorrow Doesn't Come. She sent me this long edit letter 
I don't remember how many pages it was, but I think, you know, edit letters can be very long, but they're really just asking questions about what about this? And again, what is she expecting here? And, you know, do we want this? Like I made a spreadsheet. It's like a hundred lines long and it's just questions that she had. Or if it was a statement, I would turn it into a question. And then I would sit there and go through the spreadsheet before I even went to the draft and had some answers, didn't have some answers for some things. Um, And the expectation was never that I was going to answer everything or uh, even address every single point that was brought up. That's just her saying, me as a reader, here's the questions I had. Other readers are likely going to have those questions. Do you want to answer them or not? And that's, it's really, it's a really cool experience, honestly, and feels just like the greatest gift because for somebody to sit down and put that much time into your work, like, I I know getting edited is hard because of course it's like, hey, here's the things you need to change. But to me, it's just always felt so generous and like, it's this really beautiful act of kindness. Like it's just a really very like beautiful experience to have with somebody where you're like going back and forth and like shaping the book together. I love the window analogy. I, um, I I really love that idea because I I think again students do peer editing as practice and I think that idea of getting curious about the vision that folks are trying to create is a really great way of framing it um and the piece about you know what are the greater questions you're trying to ask and to what extent do you want them answered is really powerful as well I hope this comparison isn't either annoying because it's been made already or offensive in any way because I'm you know I would never imply that your work is derivative your your book in so many ways is so unique and powerful and I can't think of another YA book that it compares to it has reminded me and this might just be default of timing I've seen some similarities with the TV series that a lot of folks can't stop talking about right now the last of us um mm-hmm. because both seem to ask us, you know, how will people respond to profound challenge and darkness? But also, I think both your book and that series sort of disrupt the pattern of there are only primary characters who matter, like your secondary characters are super significant, and the notion that I'm not going to have diversity in my cast just to have it, like it's done in a meaningful, intentional very thoughtful way. Um, and I'm I'm wondering again, that might just be some timing, but is there any any text that sort of reminds you of your own, just in the sense of the questions that it asks? Yeah. So I'll admit first that I haven't watched the show yet because I'm waiting for the whole thing to be out. And then I'm just <laughs> smart. <laughs> which I advise is probably a bad idea because I'll probably just weep for like a week, it sounds like. <laughs> Um, but I've been online enough to kind of to kind of understand the gist and probably what a lot of the similarities and, and characters and framings are. Um, and yes, it's absolutely going to crush me. I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, some some similar works or at least things that I think are asking these questions. Um, weirdly enough, San Junipero, I think the Black Mirror episode mm-hmm. is about these two women who are older and just for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, and are essentially their consciousness is uploaded to this to this world. And it's just a lot about like, who are you? And what does heaven look like for you? And what's, what's the point of mortality? Um, and, and what does mortality do for us in terms of our experience on earth? And 
how we treat each other and how we shape our lives. Um, Eric J. Brown is another YA author whose book, All That's Left in the World, is, from my understanding of The Last of Us, maybe is similar. Um, it's a queer YA book about two boys kind of thrown together after an apocalyptic situation um, and how they kind of find their way to each other and what their relationship means. Um, that's a really, really beautiful book. Um, and I think, too, this might be kind of strange, but I've been asking myself, looking at a lot of queer books that tackle this, um, for example, Adam Silvera's book, not just um, They Both Die at the End, but also More Happy Than Not. And there's a lot of queer books about time and finality. And to your point earlier, you know, I think queer people, uh, you know, think a little bit differently about like the timelines of our lives sometimes um, because we don't necessarily have the same markers of, of time and age um, in the same way. And I've been thinking lately, and I apologize because I'm, I did not plan on talking about this and just thinking it out loud, but I have been wondering what the AIDS crisis also, the impact that it had on our collective consciousness of just like, I wasn't really alive during that time. Was I mean, I was, but I wasn't old enough to understand what was going on. But there was so much about mortality and loss in community and what does it mean to have this limited amount of time on earth? What does it mean to be kind of on the outside of society in that way? And I have been, I never intended for there to be that connection. I recently read Tucker Shaw's When You Call My Name, and that's about um, young men living with AIDS. It's a YA book. It's really beautiful. Um, so a lot of these stories that are dealing with, you know, finite amounts of time and asking us what's our point on earth. And I think everybody asks themselves that in their lives. But when you have a finite amount of time, it's just like this. It's just everything is put under a magnifying glass and you are really forced to make choices around love and what you're willing to lose and um, what you do when you have lost things. And I, I don't think that's a uniquely queer experience, but I do think somewhere there's just like hyper focus on this and a lot of queer media that I consume. And maybe that's just that I'm seeking it out. <laughs> but I do think in TV and uh, film and movies and even in music, sometimes I notice these themes. Um, I think we're all thinking, especially after COVID, about loss uh, and time and, and what our lives look like. You have me wondering, and I, you know, I, I don't even, maybe this is far off and don't even need to respond to this, but I'm wondering too if the role of the apocalyptic narrative is sort of there to help us because I think really understanding our own mortality is so difficult, right? It's like trying to comprehend the notion of infinity. It's like my brain, and maybe it's just my brain. I'm only going to speak for my brain here. Um, it only has so much power in it. And I wonder if it's the idea of an asteroid. I can kind of comprehend that, but comprehending just the mortality that you know we are all subject to is so difficult that it's the apocalyptic narrative that lets us really grapple with the idea that whether it's an asteroid or not, for all of us, time is not infinite, right? Like we are all going to have a limit. And I wonder if that's why it's a story that comes back to us again and again, because we do need to deal with it. And it's almost like, here's a little bit of a scaffold for thinking about it in a way that's um, 
humanly possible? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I lost my cousin when I was seven and he was seven. And so like at a pretty early age, I saw someone who I loved and related to very much die. And I think like from that experience, I just spent so much of my life. Um, like I think about death all the time, to be honest, and not in a not in a, an obsessive way, but it's just always been part of my consciousness of like, you know, the finality of our or the finiteness, I guess, of our lives. Um, and I think it's something that's like horrible to grapple with, but also, like you said, it's like something that's going to come up over and over again. That's just part of being human. And I think we're like in America maybe particularly or maybe just this day and age I think we're so scared of dealing with it and like really looking it in the face and um you know we we live in such like violence and we just went through a mass uh we still are going through you know a pandemic um and it's just like if we can't now start to talk about what death is um and how to deal with it in like a healthy and like compassionate way um, you know, there's like a lot of it's like kind of like don't talk about it. Uh, we'll have the funeral and that's it. And um, or at least that's been my experience of like outside of a religious context. It's really hard to find meaning in it and have conversations around it. Um, and I've always felt like people don't really want to talk about it. And I get it. I completely get it. But at the same time, it's it's the reality of our lives. And so I think like not every day, maybe not as much as I think about death, but I do think it's important to think about and, you know, how you're going to help people get through it and what that looks like and, um, you know, how to comfort people and how to move on um, and carry people with you. Well, and I think your book also really helps folks understand, appreciate, and value that grief looks different for different people, right? Um, and it's interesting because a few months back, I had Marissa Renee Lee on the show to talk about her memoir. And she introduced me to the concept of grief literacy. Um, and so, um, I, again, I think in the context of education, we talk a lot about social emotional learning. And I think to your point, we can't ignore grief, right? And I think in many ways, it it's almost an emotion that needs to be prioritized. And of course, speaking mm -hmm. about things that we think we can, uh, you know, if we just don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, um, or kind of a what can we do to erase truth? You know, right now, as you and I are speaking, there are folks who are advocating around the world to erase books like yours, that even the concept of a queer character is something that folks will actively organize to eradicate from libraries. And I think a lot about, um, you know, I have a screenshot of it. That's why I can say it's from June 7, 2019. <laughs> it's a Dana Piccoli tweet that reads, quote, if you want to know why we keep needing and pushing for more LGBTQ characters in TV and film, it's because people are less likely to hate us, want to hurt us, kill us if they can see us and understand us. It's about more than seeing ourselves. It's about saving ourselves, end quote. Jen, of course, you're an extremely talented author. You reserve every right to create whatever book you want to apply your skills towards. I wonder at the same time if with this book, with Avery and Cass and Aisha, there is a bigger call to action that served as your fuel in the drafting process. Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's been a journey just because it 
took me so long to write the book and I was figuring myself out as I wrote it. Um, but there, there was a shift when I realized, like, I think when I first started writing it, I wanted it to have mass appeal. I wanted everyone to read my book. Um, I thought like in order to get published, it had to appeal to the most amount of people possible. Um, so it wasn't even a queer love story until pretty late in the game, um, until like 2018, like when I was really finishing the draft and making choices around it, which is so weird to think about now. Um, but I just, at that point, made a choice that this is a love letter to the queer community, and I'm mostly writing for queer people. Obviously, if, you know, cisgender, straight people relate to it, I'm delighted, and I think that's beautiful, and I it hopefully speaks to, like, the universality of this, these experiences. I hope everyone enjoys my book, but it's not necessarily who I was writing for, um, and I think that'll probably be true for all of my books, and I think, yeah, I mean, I feel really angry today. Like I woke up really angry because, you know, uh, like days ago um, and like content warning for transphobia violence, but like days ago, a teenager in the UK named Brianna Jai was murdered. And then yesterday, 180, you know, columnists at the New York Times penned a letter talking about the New York Times transphobia. And today, <laughs> they published a defense of she who must not be named, right? Um, and I'm so angry. Like, it's it's so violent. It's like, you want to talk about censorship? Like, I can count on my hands the amount of YA books that um, are written by trans women featuring trans feminine protagonists. And, like, it's so disgusting to me that we give these gigantic platforms to people who are so transphobic, um, literally called in the defense of in the one of the biggest journalist institutions in the world, right? Um, so yeah, I'm I'm angry, and if we're if we're going to be forced to pick sides here, I know what side I'm on. <laughs> I'm not going to try to tell anybody else's story, but I'm always going to be writing for the queer community and like looking for places where I can help other people who are less represented than I am even tell their story too. Like that's always going to be a goal for me in my, in my journey as a writer and as a reader and just as like a friend and like a human being. Um, and I think publishing has to like reckon with that a little bit too of like, why are there so few books by trans women, um, especially in the YA space, you know, like that's a form of silencing, that's a form of censorship, that's a form of violence you want to talk about banning books like they're not even getting published and like I know there are these writers out there I know that like it is just facts <laughs> um and so what what are we doing here like certainly not calling out any one publisher or anything like this is a systematic problem I just like I'm just so heartbroken all the time about it because it's like like that quote says like this isn't even about just like seeing yourself it's about saving yourself like people are being killed people are ending their own lives because they're so disenfranchised and unsupported and just like scared to be who they are because they don't know what it looks like for them to be happy. So like, I'm just really fired up about it at this point. And like, it's been true. It's always going to be true. But like, I think if we don't, I don't know, they're really loud. Like bigots are really loud and people who are prejudiced are really loud and they have huge platforms <laughs> and people are letting them talk. So like we just have to be louder and we have to be more obnoxious and we need to be in your face and like it's just 
I, I just feel like so emotional about it because it does save lives. And if I'm a part of that, like that's an honor in my life, but it's also just like, I love queer people so much. I love the queer community. And I just like, that's really who I'm writing for. And I want people to be able to have that same experience. Like I'm really blessed to, I have a book deal. Like I'm getting my book published. My story's getting out there. I really, really hope it has a positive impact. And there are other writers too that could do that same thing if they're just given the chance. And I, I hope that starts to change over these next couple of years. Like I'm watching, I think other people are watching and um, you know, okay, they're trying to quiet us. So what, who, who are you going to put on a platform? Like, who are you going to give this book deal to? <laughs> Who's, you know, book is going to be published over the next couple of years. Like I, I really hope that people are very conscious about that. And um, I know it's not, well, like a lot of people higher up who who maybe aren't paying attention or just looking at the numbers, like what's selling, but it's bigger than that. And um, those books would sell too. Like they really would. <laughs> There's a lot of people who need them. So um, that's kind of my overall feeling about it. I really like, you know, your framing of we have to think so critically about powerful platforms. What is their purpose? What is their use? And also how can we hold them accountable? Because to your point, yes, bigotry is loud um and we also can organize so i often you know recommend we want more books like this we have to advocate for them you know anybody who's been listening to the show for multiple episodes is maybe tired of me talking about this but i will continue to talk about you have to review you have to share you have to use word of mouth you have to talk to your local library. You've got to talk to your school library and you've got to talk to the school board um, and any public facing space where you can leave a positive review. You know, there will be I'm sure you're already ready for some of the like one star reviews that you will get by folks who haven't even read the book, but that's just their that's just their organizing strategy and tactic. Right. So. I'm wondering if you could direct readers to, or even just talk about what do those positive reviews mean to you? Um, you know, I, I talk about Goodreads a lot. It's a good space that so many readers that I know and so many educators that I know use that, go there. Are there other spaces where it would be personally important or affirming for you to see readers turn up to support the book? Yeah, I think really anywhere, um, I think StoryGraph's kind of gaining some momentum as another platform outside of Goodreads. I think, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of those places where books are sold typically have um, review pages. Um, I think word of mouth is huge. I think I don't really use TikTok because I, I just, uh, I don't know, my brain doesn't work like that. But I think like any, any, I try to post a lot on Twitter and Instagram about other books that I'm reading. I really trust, you know, my friend's opinion. So if they're posting about a book, I'm very likely to pick it up. Um, so just kind of being loud about like the works you love, not necessarily mine, um, but like things that you really love, just don't be afraid to say it. Or even honestly, like I go a lot, like sometimes I'll read a book and I'm so moved by it that I will message the author on, you know, their website or, you know, like any, their email, whatever's available. And just tell them how much I loved it, like no agenda, like never expecting them to answer me. But like once I messaged this author that I just think is like a superstar, amazing person. And she said something like, I'm just having the worst day and it's been 
writing's been so hard for me lately and it's like really lifted me up so it's like what like you're like I look at you as this this icon this like absolute uh you know rock star and you have baddies too and you're having a hard time too writing such an emotional experience um and it's so easy to feel like defeated and alone and to let those bad reviews like I could everybody could get like 10 good reviews but you get like that one and that's like the one you can't stop thinking about is that negative one so like if you have a favorite creator whether it's an author or otherwise I think just like sharing your love of their work you just don't know like maybe they're having a terrible day and it'll really make their day maybe they're like you know what um I'm a trend like if I have like trans writer friends who like are scared to do events because like they're just tired and they don't really feel like uh you know dealing with a lot of hateful or violent like things that people might say to them like but I think if the good comments and like the messaging around how much people love it outweigh those I feel like every negative comment weighs like 10 pounds <laughs> and every good comment weighs like one pound. So it's like, you really need 11 <laughs> good comments to really outweigh those negative ones. So really just being like effusive with your love of the works that you love. I think like, you just don't know like how you're going to impact a writer or, um, you know, another creator's mental health and like emotional relationship with their work. And the happier they are, the, the more they'll probably be able to make more work that, that you'll connect with. So that's probably what I would say. <laughs> I, I love that. And I think that's a perfect place for us to end that idea of being really effusive with your your love for, again, these these stories, these works of art that have the power. I, I honestly think the role of story in shifting society is one of our strongest, sharpest tools. So uh, again, look forward to seeing the community rally around this book. It's one of the best books I've read this year. And that might not sound like very much, but I am like reading is my favorite thing to do. Like I oh. read an awful lot. And this book really, I was so sad actually to finish it. Like I, I was kind of avoiding reading the final few chapters because I didn't want it to be over. And often, you know, I feel this like anxiety almost to get through my to be read pile but I really drew <laughs> out those, those few final chapters. It was just so beautiful. So thank you for putting that book and these characters out there into the universe. And I know for readers of all ages, it's going to make such a difference. So um, thank you so much again. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Like, again, that just made my whole day and I'm really <laughs> grateful. It means a lot to me. So maybe I'll get some good writing done today. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate it. If our conversation has piqued your interest, I've got great news for you. There is a giveaway courtesy of the publishers of this book. To enter to win your free copy, head over to the show notes. The publishers would love to send a free copy to one of our listeners who is based in the U.S., or in Canada. So I hope you enter to win. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this has been one of the best YA books I've read this year maybe ever. So I would love to hear your thoughts on it too. If you don't win the giveaway, please of course be heading to your local independent bookstore or bookshop or your local library and let them know this book is coming May 9th and you'd like a copy. See you next week.